Welcome to Green Grasses with Cameron and Carla. You may have noticed that last week we did not publish an episode, and that was because life just happened. So <laughs> here we are. Uh, we're back for this, uh, for another episode, and we're really excited about this one. It's a little different than what we've done in the past, if you've listened to it. You know that we tell stories about God, um, about people's dependence on God, and how God is, t- is taking them through specific circumstances and how they shepherd their hearts through those circumstances. Today, it's more about how God is working in the church and how the church was established. Um, I'm gonna say the words church history sometimes, and what I'm talking about is what happened in Acts, how God established the church. And we think this topic is really, really important because we wanna be about what God loves. We want to be at the center of where God is working. And so we want to be in the church because God loves the church. He established the church, and that's what makes it important. It makes it, we have to listen to what he says in his word about the church so that we know how to function as Christians within the church. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Right, so today we have with us uh, Jonathan Anderson. Welcome to the show, John Anderson. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. This is great. Oh, and we had April, his wife. Oh, yeah. A couple weeks ago, in case you're curious. So you can go back and listen to that episode, too, because that was super encouraging to hear from her. Um, Jonathan and April Anderson have four boys, Micah, Owen, Miles, and Derek. Uh, Jonathan grew up in a godly Christian home, but was not saved until college. And since then, God has given him a passion to make God's word the only voice in the church. He pastored at Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida for 15 years. And in 2020, the Andersons moved to Tempe, Arizona. So they moved here to Arizona where it's hotter in some ways. And, and drier. And drier in Much other drier. ways. Much drier. But it does get cold. It gets cold here in yeah. the winter. And Florida doesn't really. No, not, not so much. Not like break out the parkas. Okay. Um, they moved here in 2020 to pastor at our church, Grace Bible Church. So he's also taught at the Expositor Seminary since 2006. And that's your introduction. So now we are going to do our get to know you question because we'd like to get to know Jonathan a little bit more. And Cameron and I will also share how, um, how we named our kids. So we thought it would be interesting because we know that Jonathan loves church history. And I don't know where I heard that his kids have his church history-related names. I heard that somewhere. So we thought it would be fun (laughs) to hear from Jonathan. Um, And he goes by John or Jonathan, I was sure to ask. So you may hear me say that interchangeably. (laughs) So anyway, okay, so we'll start with John. If you want to tell us how you named your kids and just the significance of it, and then Cameron will share and then I'll share. I'm, uh, I'm curious if you asked April some icebreaker questions, because if you asked her how she, how she named her kids, you might get a different answer to the exact same. Oh, where is April? <laughs> this is, yeah, where is April? If only she was she... nearby somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> she is here, but she's, she's uh, somewhere Yeah, I mean, we, it, it really is fun looking at how uh, the Lord kind of stirred us up when we were naming our kids to think about we want names that are significant. We like, we like the significance of... You know, in the Bible, names are very significant. Names, uh, you know, reflect the meaning of the of the words. Um, um, unlike one friend I had who uh, told me the name of his daughter, and I said, "That's an interesting name. Where did that? What's, what's that mean?" And he said, "Oh, it means a uh, pretty princess." And I'm like, "Oh, what, in what language or what, where's that from?" He's like, "I just made it up." And so, <laughs> unlike unlike my friend who just kind of coined his own word, um, I just think it's it's sweet. You know, that there's a significance to names, and and when we had. We were uh, expecting our first. We, you know, we were 
looking forward to, uh, you know, we knew he was uh, a boy and we liked the name Micah. Uh, it's a shortened form of Micaiah, you know, oh, Micaiah, who yeah. is like Yahweh. Um, and so Micah would be more like, who is like God, who is like Yah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God. And so uh, we liked that as well as his middle name is Patton, uh, not General, not general, general okay, Patton. My first thought. Is it John G. Patton? Yeah, John yeah, G. Patton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so my first thought was T's. the general. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two T's versus one T. That's the difference. So <laughs> different, um, different histories. Different. Yeah, it is uh, much different histories. And uh, and we were reading Patton's autobiography mm-hmm. um, the year before Michael was born, and probably even right, probably finished it after he was born, actually, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah, so he was from Scotland, and so we were reading the history just of how he uh, left, uh, in some ways, a stuffy. Um, Presbyterian model to go bring the gospel to the New Hebrides, uh, cannibals, and just um, had, had not heard the gospel. Uh, they had killed previous missionaries and eaten them, and so he goes and has seven years of total failure, not a single convert, switches islands, and after another dozen years there, he has like almost an entire conversion on Tana. And so we were just so compelled by how the Lord used him and the sufferings that were required to bring the gospel to that people. And so we, uh, we named him Micah Patton, uh, and so then that kind of started a trend. So then the rest of our four boys, we started, we kind of stuck with that theme, you know. And so we kept, you know, maybe a somewhat more typical uh, first name that's not going to cause them to blush the rest of their life, and then a middle name that might cause them to blush the rest so, of their so life. So what are their names? And, so, and what are, who are they named after? Okay, so Owen, um, Owen Elijah, uh, we we liked, and, and that's that's usually their their middle names are, are named after figures. And um, I did I like John Owen. I, I'm un, an unabashed John Owen fan. Uh, but we just like the name Owen as well, we like the name Elijah, so that just worked. That is kind of the exception because most of them, the, the historical figure is the, is the middle name. And then um, Miles Tyndale is uh, kind of the compound history name. And it was, fact, it was funny, uh, when, when we were in the hospital with Owen, I was reading David Daniel's The Word of God in English. And I was in the section where Miles Coverdale was taking John Rogers' translation and William Tyndale's translation. And as I was reading that section, we were trying to come up with a, a name for Owen, a middle, a middle name for Owen. And I was like, what about Miles? And we both liked it so much. We were like, let's just, let's, 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 if we have another boy, let's name him Miles. And so, mm-hmm. so then that's how Miles got his name. And, and I, love, I love Tyndale. Um, yeah. And then Derek is Derek Lloyd-Jones. And so he gets the hyphenated middle name. He gets, I mean, that, and that was free. We didn't even charge him extra. We just gave <laughs> that to him for free. Whether he so your youngest has how many names? Just, just, just three. Just, just three. Just the, the middle name's a just hyphenated middle, name. That's oh, okay. all. That's all. Lloyd Jones. But where did Derek come from? Derek is just the Hebrew word way. And oh. um, so, you know, like the way. And, it's, and we're studying Mark right now, who's talking about the way of the Lord through the wilderness because he's ex- giving an exposition of Isaiah 40 in, in many ways how Jesus' life fulfills that. So it's pretty sweet hmm. thinking about the way of is the path that God walks and the path that his people walk. So that's kind of how the name's came about although I, I'll say this th- this is an interesting anecdote you, you guys will appreciate this uh, being moms uh, when we had uh, at our former church we had a baby uh, dedication you know where just the yeah. op- opportunity to pray and, and commit your, the parents to, to raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord so our pastor reads off the name now at this point I think we had missed one because we were out of town or whatever so this Derek's like a year and a half old I mean we've had this kid for he's, a year and a half he's like 12 and, yeah, we'd like to dedicate yeah, our child yeah. he, it was you know shortly before junior high ministry uh-huh. but we were still committed to dedicating that guy and um so the pastor reads out his name and 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 you know we, we get up because he, he said our names and he says yeah and then they have Derek Lloyd Jones Anderson and April starts laughing out loud next to me as we're walking up the aisle and I and I realized 
I basically had the burden of naming Derek. I had the privilege of naming Derek. And uh, when April's still not used to the name after two years, she uh, just laughs. It was a, she just laughs. <laughs> she just laughs at that poor kid. So, Aww. yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay. That's so fun. Oh, me? Sure. Am I going next? Okay. Well, I have three Christian, Eric, and Sydney. And my husband Steve named all of our kids. And all I asked for, just normal sounding names. I just <laughs> normal sounding, normal spelling. You know, something that... No, no hyphenated that, middle names? <laughs> well, he has a hyphenated middle name. So he's like... Your husband, Steve. Yes, yeah, Steve has a hyphenated middle Sort of. I don't even know. He has three names. And so he was kind of like, I don't want to. But he has his mom's maiden name. You know, it's Stephen Paul Terrell Walker. Oh. Yes. So it's his mom's maiden name who, along with... So he has two middle names is really what it is. But anyway. Um, so he always loved the name Christian just because it meant follower of Christ. And so it was just very simple, just mm-hmm. follower of Christ. And so he's, he had always loved that name. His middle name, James, is after a man who uh, discipled him for a long time who passed away pretty suddenly at our old church. And so he was just a man that just meant a lot to Steve. So he just wanted to give him his name. So his name's Christian James. And then Eric, he um, is named after Eric Little because he was mm-hmm. just a man of conviction. Now, while we, you know, I, we wouldn't say that you can't run a race on Sundays, um, we would just, he was just someone who believed in something so much and he was faithful to his conviction to the point where he wouldn't run for a gold medal or, mm-hmm. you know, for a gold medal mm-hmm. race. And that was just meaningful to us. And then William is his grandpa's middle name. So we thought we'd keep some family names going. Sydney, we just like the sound of that name. <laughs> we thought it was pretty. But her middle name is Hope. And Hope is probably one of my favorite words in scripture. Because it just, it is the anchor of the soul. It is what keeps us faithful to the Lord, is the hope of heaven, uh, the hope of every promise that God has made. And so I just love, I love the name hope. I love the word hope. I love everything about hope that's in scripture. So that's why her name is hope. Mm. And I have four children. So I have Susanna, Beniah, Onesimus, poor child, that third one. And Mary, because obviously, Carla, we didn't go with easy, normal-sounding names. Um, So we decided to name our kids based off of where we were reading in Scripture at the time. So Susanna was our first, and I was pregnant. And no, actually, that's actually that wouldn't apply. So the other three was were based off of where we were reading in Scripture at the time. But Susanna. I was sitting in church and Scott Maxwell was preaching through the book of Luke, which really still has been just one of the most impactful series I've ever heard. And he was in Luke 8. And in Luke 8, at the end, there's a list of women who provided for Jesus out of their own means. Um, And so Scott was just going through and telling us what we knew about each of these women on this list. And he's like, and Susanna, and you know, there are a couple of things that we know about this woman and this woman. And then he's like, and Susanna's the last name on this list. And we don't really know much about her other than the fact that she's on this list, you know. And I walked out of there and I was just, I was just so impacted for some reason that, that God knew that woman. He knew that woman mm. and her name is in scripture mm. and she provided for Jesus out of her own means. And, and, and I asked Matt, I asked my husband if we could name her Susanna and he was like, fine. I think I actually ended up naming all of our kids, but it wasn't by design. And then um, Beniah, I was reading in 1 Samuel 23 and mm. he was one of David's mighty men, mm-hmm. killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day and ended up being Solomon's like hitman, sort of, yeah. a little bit. Those mighty men. <laughs> I don't know. That's Those great, mighty men. That's a great heritage for Benaya. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. I know, you know. It's a lot to live up to, but. Uh, yeah. So. I'm glad you didn't go with Joab. 
I didn't go with Joab. No, mm. there are some names that I wouldn't have. Anyway, so Beniah, <laughs> uh, that's how we named him. And then Onesimus, I was reading the book of Philemon. And I was like, this is such a sweet picture of the gospel because here's this slave and he hears the preaching of the gospel and he gets saved, you know, and, and I'm like, that's who I was. You know, we, I was a slave to my sin and then I, and then I was saved and then I was like, Matt, can we name him Onesimus? And I'll, also, no, no hesitation. He was totally fine with it. So that poor child has a, has a everyone else actually knows someone with their name, like even Benaiah. I actually know a couple of other mm-hmm. Benaiahs. I know another one. Do you? I do. <laughs> um... But Onesimus, I haven't found any other Onesimuses yet, so we're still looking. But we just call him Ness for short. It's way more normal. Well, if he ever needs encouragement, you can just remind him about Derek's middle name. (laughs) At least your name isn't hyphenated. At least we're not like the Andersons. No, that's not what we... And then Mary is our last one, and she was named after um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, because... I was reading her Magnificat, and, and I was just so, it was, the first, it was the first time of my reading of that that I realized how much theology Mary had um, and how much scripture Mary knew as a young girl. I was mm-hmm. like, do you know how much theology and scripture allusions are in this mm-hmm. passage of scripture? I don't know. So, so we named, so Mary got the easiest name. And uh, we do middle names based off of Fruits of the Spirit. So it's Susanna Joy, Benaiah Peace, Onesimus Faithful, and Mary Lib. That's so sweet. So now we have all gotten to know each other a little bit more. That's great. I know. You know a lot about, you get to know a lot about a family with the you way do. they know what they name their kids. That's really fun. Thanks, Cameron. Mm. Okay. So without further ado, we are going to interview John Anderson. So again, our topic today is um, church history defined as God established it in, in, the, in the book of Acts mm-hmm. the, and the, why, why we need to know about it today. So our first question for you is, can you just tell us how the church began established by God in Acts? You're getting ahead of yourself because first we need to hear about mm-hmm. Jonathan um, and how he came to know the Lord. <laughs> Um, thanks, Carla. This is, why, this is why I'm not a solo When podcaster. you skip a week, you know, you're just, we're off our game a little bit. Okay, so first, I, I'm pretty comfortable throwing out the script. You know? I know, I right? Just bring it. Can, this is great. First, can you share with us, because really the foundation of any of our lives is how we came to know the Lord. Um, mm-hmm. We can understand scripture after we have come to Christ. And so we, and we love to hear testimonies of people. They're so encouraging yeah. to us, to our listeners. Um, so we would love to hear how it is that you came to know the Lord. Yeah, and telling my testimony in this context is fun because you guys know my father. Um, oh, I grew yes. up in a godly home. I, I, he and my mom loved the Lord, honored the Lord. Um, they, you know, uh, of course I would have known their, their sins and their weaknesses, but there was no gross hypocrisy. They genuinely walked with Christ. And, and um, you know, we lived in Kansas most of the time in small towns. Um, most of my elementary school years, we were in small towns outside the city of Wichita, and we had a we had a decent church that did a decent job of preaching the word. And even when I went out to um, Western Kansas in my high school years, you know, Dad is just looking to try to find the best church where I, we would hear the word of God. And it was not, it, it just wasn't um, what I would call compelling. I mean, um, I was never, I, I could never be a judge of what I was hearing. I was an unbeliever. I was, I was condemned by anything that I was hearing. But all that to say, that was part of my conversion because when I went off to, I went off to Chicago to study at Moody Bible Institute, um, you know, I, I, 
I was well versed in scripture. I was well versed in theology. Uh, I got it. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of, a lot of people are, a lot of students are turned away. A lot of people are trying to get in at, at Moody. And I got accepted. I mean, I knew how to say everything and anything you're supposed to say on an application like that. Sure. And so, um, when at Moody, it wasn't until I was studying at Moody that I actually got saved. But what was interesting about that was, um, I, I had a lot of history to look back on and I had a lot of exposure to church and, um, my conversion experience gave me a lot of perspective about really what was lacking in the church. So when you went um, to Moody, did you know that you were an unbeliever or did you think I was just totally deceived? Okay, so I was, thought con- you were I thought I was a believer. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I was a leader in my youth group. Uh, you know, my dad is theologically articulate. Um, I, I, I got an, I, I knew how to debate scripture and theological positions with my youth pastor. Mm-hmm. It, it was the most gross form of, um, just delusion, like d- yeah, self delusion, self delusion, self delusion. I, I was loving my sin, enslaved to it, even knowing enough from what I'm taught in the church that I need, I'm, I'm, I'm a good Christian. So therefore I repent. So the way that I'm living, I'll put that off until next fall. <laughs> but next fall comes around, I'll put it off till next spring. I'll put it, you know, just just making excuses to keep loving my sin. And so that, that's how I lived. Um, so I was searing my conscience, um, genuinely believing that I'm a Christian because I knew all these answers and nobody would have guessed otherwise because of the way I lived my external life. Um, so, you know, you fast forward to, to Moody. Here I am, a freshman. Um, I'm... In, in a short amount of time, the Lord brought some significant trials into my life. I, um, I mean, and my, my goals for going there was just, I want to get out of, this, out of the uh, rural area. I want to get into the city. I just want to make the basketball team. I want to date somebody. I want, and that's just pretty much the extent of my ambition. And so God just really systematically touched every single area of um, idolatry that I had. Um, I made the basketball team, first home game, tore my ACL, never played basketball again. Uh, my mom came down with terminal cancer, um, and my girlfriend, uh, and I broke up right around the time that I had my, my ACL reconstruction. So there I was a thousand miles away from home. My mom's dying of cancer. Mm-hmm. All of my friends were my girlfriend's friends who are now are not no longer, mm-hmm. no longer my friends. Mm-hmm. And so there I was just absolutely angry. I was just so hostile. Um, this is not the way life is supposed to go. I hate that I'm experiencing this. This is miserable. Um, it really was, it, it was, there, was a, there was a showdown in my own mind about how I was going to interpret that because I was taking, at the time, I was taking a bunch of psychology classes. And so I'm getting, you know, we were studying, I had, a, I had an intro to psych class, a developmental psych class. All this is my freshman year. So I'm learning Skinner, Freud, um, Rogers. Sure. Nurture versus nature debate. How do I process what's happening to me? That's just, there's, there's a whole psychology behind that. And in God's providence, one day in class, the professor administers a stress test. And this stress test is really well written. It's bringing out like all of these dynamics that I'm experiencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go back and I think I was, I think I was, um, I'm go, head, getting ready to head to, head to physical therapy or whatever I was about to do. The, the professor calls me in my dorm room. Uh, her name was Dr. Kane, and she says, hey, Jonathan, I, I just saw your stress test, and uh, do you mind coming into my office? So we set up a time for me to come in. I'm thinking, like, oh, what in the world? I come in there, and we, she, I start telling her my story, 
And in, a, in about 20 minutes, she kind of hears where I'm coming from, and she just offers the interpretation. She just says, John, have you ever considered that you're depressed? And I'm thinking, uh, well, yeah, I think I might be. Like, I literally never had that category until that moment. But sure, that sounds reasonable. And so she gives me a book to read. I walk home. I go back to my dorm. I read that book. It was, it was a Brother Lawrence, medieval mystic, you know, yeah. contemplating God's presence while he's washing the dishes in his monastery. It was totally unhelpful. And I, I remember at the same time, by God's grace, reading the scriptures and seeing two absolutely opposite interpretations of my life. Either on the one hand, I'm a victim of my mom coming down with cancer. I'm a victim of, you know, socially being an outcast and of being, you know, not even being on, playing basketball anymore. All these things that I want to be doing, I can't do. On the other hand, there's this interpretation I'm getting from the Bible that is telling me that I'm shaking my fist at God because he's on the throne of the universe and I want to be. So the, the difference in the interpretation is psychology is telling me I'm a victim. The Bible is telling me I'm the culprit. I'm the greatest criminal in the universe. And so here I was for 18 years, my entire life, all I knew of life, I, I believed that I was a Christian ever since I prayed some prayer when I was four. And, um, and I'm sitting there for the first time realizing I've sinned against God and I've shared the gospel with people. And I've never actually until this point believed that I should go to hell and I need Christ's atonement for my own sin. I, I'm, I am host I hate God and he should have snuffed me out. And so that was really how the Lord first got a hold of me and um, just transformed me radically. Then it was about the age of uh, 18. It's just, it's just always such a radically encouraging story because you're just spiritually dead, you know? And mm. it is just Ephesians 2. It is just like, but God, you know, right. made you alive. Made Absolutely. you alive. Brought, brought, brought circumstances into your life to lead you to that point. But at the end of the day, one day you were blind, and then the next day you could see. And that's right. just, just mercy and grace. Mm -hmm. Super Amen. encouraging. So, Cameron, we are now ready for the questions. <laughs> Thank you, Carla. Sure. Um, okay, so now we're going to really dive into our topic, which is uh, really church history, but really more specifically, how did the church start? Mm -hmm. um, and what does that mean for us today, thinking back to how the church started? And because um, I think that's really meaningful to see how the church started, how the church was working. And so we want to just really ask that question, John, how did the church begin? Can yeah. you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. No, and, and what I love about the question is it's so critical to make sure that we, we know God's perspective on that. You know, it, it's, it's, it's suddenly, you know, if you just said, if you ask somebody, why do you go to church? Mm -hmm. That's going to be a very revealing answer about how much, they do, what, how much of what they do is tradition, how much of what they do is because this is what, what I'm called to do. Um, when you look at the origin of the church, you can't help but realize this is not something that man came up with. You know, this is not, we, we, we were trying to figure out what social club or some sort of answer for this, you know, um, you know, that God-shaped vacuum in our heart. And so, mm -hmm. you know, or it was some sort of moral weakness. And so therefore we came up with an idea of God and now we worship him in this fashion. Um, there is a reason why we do church the way we do it. There's a reason why the, the church exists and, and um, the head of the church is Christ. And so even answering that question is just, mm -hmm. it just, 
it immediately separates church mm-hmm. from every other club, every other mm-hmm. social venue, um, every other religion, and every man-centered attempt to do church. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's so yeah. sweet about you know going back to the the origin. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the scriptures, it's interesting. Jesus comes along and he fulfills the Old Testament. He he comes along and he shows up and he's he's the seed. He's the son of David. He is the the he, he is the, the, the second Adam who uh, is going to reverse the curse. And, um, and he did that in the micro level when his, in his first visit. You know, you see wherever he's at, if he's in Capernaum, he's eradicating sickness and disease. He's calming storms. He's every effect of, this, of, uh, of, the, of the curse, he's undoing, even death uh, in a handful of instances. Um, the widow's son, Lazarus, and you know, so forth. But not at the macro level, and he's going to do that. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is the one thing that you don't see that he's focusing on in his, in his first coming is, is the introduction of the doctrine of the church. So if, if we were to talk about systematic theology, and you were to talk about any of those topics, um, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, mm-hmm. um, doctrine of salvation, um, the resurrection of the second person of the Trinity, we can prove all of those doctrines from the Old Testament. The, the one that you can't is the church, ecclesiology. In, in other words, the New Testament calls it mystery. So Christ comes along, and as it's been documented in his own earthly ministry that he's already being rejected by the religious leaders, he begins to instruct his disciples about this thing called the church. And so it's just interesting seeing what's happening here. And that doesn't mean that the church is an afterthought. In fact, the church has been in his heart and mind since, since creation, since before creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul makes that clear that actually even the design he had in his mind when he created marriage, when he created Adam and Eve, was actually patterned after his view of Christ's love for the church. So it's not that the church is an afterthought. It's just that it wasn't revealed until Christ comes along and starts teaching on it. Mm-hmm. Um, he introduces it in, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And that's probably the, you know, I'll just make a couple quick comments here and then I'll make a quick comment about Acts because I know you've got a bunch of great questions here. But it's helpful, if you're listening to this, it's just helpful to remember how it started. Jesus starts introducing it before it even becomes reality because obviously Acts 2 is the beginning of the church. It's the first Christian sermon. It's when you finally have um, New Testament saints, or you might better, better way to say it would be New Covenant saints indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Um, that's the first time that that starts. So in Matthew 16, Jesus, um, Jesus basically says... Um, He's talking to Peter. Um, he, he, Peter makes the confession, you know, when he's asking them, who are you? Uh, who do people say that I am? And he says, um, I believe that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, Jesus turns around and says to, to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So, I mean, this is a guarantee that Christ is, is going to build his church. So the, 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 the first person pronouns here are critical. Christ will build his church, mm-hmm. and Christ will build his church. He says, I will build my church. So it's mm-hmm. his church. Mm-hmm. It's not our church. It's his church, and he's the one who will build it. Mm-hmm. So he's building it, and he owns it. He purchased it, he bought it, he rules it, he's the authority, he's the head. Mm-hmm. And that goes, even goes back to, to my testimony. When I was saved, one of the things that I looked back on on those years of seeing what I heard as the thrust or the message in the church was something so simplistic 
and so watered down compared to this ridiculously glorious message I was reading in the Bible. I thought, whatever happened to Christ's voice? Hmm. And, and, and it was just, ever since I was saved, I, I just felt this burden, like, this, this is his church. What, what happened to his word? I mean, I'm reading, and there's, there's so much here that I've never even heard people talk about, let alone scratch the surface, let alone even deal with in depth. And so it just was suddenly like, like, what's going on here? Christ's voice is the only voice that matters. It's his church, and he will build it. And so he condescends and includes us to be a part of that church. But when we understand the original design, when we understand how it started, uh, that changes how we would even serve in the church. Suddenly, I'm not building the church, and it's not my church. Neither one of those are. Those are both flawed from the get-go. So that's why it's so important to go back to the original blueprints of what Jesus laid out. Um, He's building it, but well, how does how are we a part of that? The only way I can contribute is by serving in the fashion he gave me in his word and by faithfully articulating what he said in his word. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the church is not a place where Christ's voice is the loudest. It's the only voice that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't just be Christ gets 80% of the volume and then we get the other 20%. It's no, Christ gets 100% of the mm-hmm. volume. Let's get after letting him be the head of the church and we should be only saying what he said. And so that's, that's, there's just a lot of implications I'm developing, obviously. That's, that's a little bit more than you see in Matthew 16. But starting with that, you start to see why some of those New Testament exhortations about the church become so important. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so knowing, thinking back to how it started, um, why? Why does that matter to us today? Like, why is that important? Yeah. You know, why would we do a podcast on it? Why would we need to talk about it? Why do we need to prioritize it in our lives? Yeah. Yeah. When we think about the church, why is it helpful for us to walk our hearts back to the to that point in history? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like if I go back there, if I go back to Matthew 60, and I, and I realized I didn't even get to Acts 2, but just if you think about Acts 2, I'm sure that's a familiar text to, to the listeners. Um, you think about Peter preaching that first sermon, and he's pointing out that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And then they, they realize we've killed our Messiah. What do we do? Mm. He starts preaching to them you know, that you need to repent and believe the gospel. And what that's marked by is they separate themselves from a perverse culture, a perverse generation, he says, and they join themselves to the church. Mm-hmm. So they're physically baptized in, by immersion in water. Mm-hmm. They join themselves to the church. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. And that becomes their new life. So if, 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 that's, the, if that's the prototype of the church... If that's what God started, um, that needs, there, there's, there's, there's principles in Acts 2. There's commands in Matthew 16. There's commands in Matthew 18 uh, that need to be maintained. Namely, the identity of who's in the church and the separation of those in the church from the world. Mm-hmm. If that line starts to get blurred, then we've failed at the church. So that, that's why it's so important to go back to the blueprints. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite MacArthur books is The Shame of the Gospel. And the subtitle... I don't remember if he changed the subtitle, but at least the, the newer one that came, the, the third edition, the subtitle is When the Church Becomes Like the World. Mm. And that's exactly the problem is um, Jesus is highlighting, look, here, here's, here's the church, and you, you, I'm going to give you keys. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you keys. What do keys do? They, they open and lock, right? Yeah. So we're talking about inclusion and exclusion. We're talking about access. We're talking about who's in, who's out. And, Paul's, and I mean, uh, Jesus is telling Peter about this inclusion-exclusion function being given to the apostles. And so Peter comes along and says, this is what it looks like. What do, we, what do you need to do? You need to repent. And they leave the world, join the church. Yeah. 
So when, when you can stay in the world and stay in the church, the church is no longer the church. Right. Yeah. So now what's happening is in American Christianity, we have a massive amount of church being practiced that isn't even recognized by the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Right. It's called church on the label, on the, in, the, in the directory, in the phone book, in the index, or on the sign in front of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, but the New Testament wouldn't even recognize it as church because the church is an institution that's not man-made. It's given by God. It's purchased by Christ's blood. It's created by God, and he created it with his word. Mm-hmm. And so we're sitting there. We're, we're under orders. And if the church starts to let that, let the world in, it waters down the church. Suddenly, the reflection of Christ on earth, namely the holiness that he's producing in his bride, it starts to become indistinguishable from the world. Mm -hmm. And so now all of a sudden, Christ's name is drugged through the mud, and that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Um, Of course, every every local assembly, no no local assembly is going to be as as righteous as Christ. Um, that's not going to happen until Christ returns and we're glorified. Um, so we're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about fidelity to the New Testament mandate. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that's happening that calls itself New Testament Church in America today that is is failing at this mm-hmm. at this the prototype. Yeah. It's, it's not even fulfilling that mandate of keep drawing a line in the sand. I like what you said about how, you know, you leave the world, there's separation, and then the church is your new life, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because that is part of our union in Christ is that we are saved into a body. And so I'm just thinking about this illustration, right, about the body of Christ, how we are all together serving different functions in the church. Um, I just thought that that was helpful Mm -hmm. because it's, we are, we are one body. Well, and and that's what, oh, sorry. Oh, no. And if you're not in the church, it's very hard to separate yourself from the world, which is one of the distinctives. You know, is that you come here to be separated from the world. But if you're not in church, it's very hard to separate yourself from the world. If you're not physically going to a place where you're getting that fellowship and getting, um, you know, where everyone's serving and encouraging one another and growing in, in the knowledge of the word and, and love of God and on all of that, you're missing that separation. And That's so right. Right. it can really affect your life. That's right. It, it goes back to the fact that no one person, let alone one biological family, has all the gifts. Right. I mean, it just—it just doesn't. That's just not the. That's not the body. That's not the church. Yeah. Um, we need all those gifts. Like the church needs me. The church needs you. Needs you. All three of us have spiritual gifts that God gave us as a, for the local assembly. Mm-hmm. So the church needs that, and we need the, the gifts of others. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting about that the 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 problem when we aren't drawing that line in the sand according just just thinking in the big picture of Matthew sixteen eighteen Acts two when the church starts to become like the world, when, when we stop drawing a line in the sand between world and church, it doesn't matter how good our articulation of the gospel is anymore. Hmm. And let me, explain that, let me explain that real quick. And this might be helpful for, um, especially if, if um, uh, you, know, you mentioned that the listeners are, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the listeners to this podcast are, are ladies. If, if I'm speaking to a high percentage of maybe uh, wives or moms, this will resonate immediately. Think about the comparison. There's, there's actually an appropriate comparison between how you articulate truth to your kids and how the, how the church articulates truth to the community. Mm-hmm. Okay, if, if, if parents articulate the gospel and they articulate repentance to their kids, and let's say um, we got moms listening to this podcast who have the eloquence of Thomas Watson, and they yeah. are just like giving like the yeah. most profound yeah. <laughs> expositions of repentance to their, to their toddlers and to their junior hires and to their high school yeah. teens. And then what happens in the home mm-hmm. is that repentance isn't modeled. Yeah. 
Well, now it doesn't matter how well you articulated repentance mm-hmm. because the definition of your really articulate presentation of it has been filled in. All those gaps have been filled in by your practice. Your practice is, what gonna, is what's going to define mm-hmm. the verbiage. So the same thing happens in a, in a corporate assembly. If, if, a, if a local church says, yeah, we are the church. We're here to uphold the pillar and stronghold of truth. Let's say we have a proper ecclesiology. And let's say we even articulate the gospel. Our articulation of the gospel is 100% accurate. But they n- never draw the line and never create a dichotomy between church and world. Somebody comes in there and they hear this articulate, eloquent presentation of gospel truths straight out of the scripture, and they look across the aisle, and in the pew next, next row, there's, oh, there's Joe and Jim, and they've been married for 17 years, and they've been comfortably dwelling here at this church. Mm-hmm. Well, suddenly repentance means whatever this church is practicing, and so it means that kind of lifestyle or whatever. So you just see how, you see how the practice of drawing that line between church and world is so critical to the articulation of truth. Uh, yeah, I think that there's this tendency almost to look back at what happened in Acts 2 and see how radical it was. There was this radical separation, a, a new thing, right, with the apostles and everything like that, and just think that that was localized. And maybe some of those things with the signs and the wonders were localized to that time because something new was happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the practice of being set apart, the practice of being radically different and, and, and everything that that meant under Nero, everything that meant under... Well, every government that's been hostile to Christianity since then. Um, the, the idea of being set apart as believers, that, that's always been in Scripture. The idea of God separating a people out for himself that look radically different from the cultures and, and, and people around them, mm-hmm. that's just biblical from Moses in the wilderness, right, to all the way through Acts 2, all the way through today, right? It's, 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 it's people who reflect his character. It's people mm-hmm. who reflect his holiness. Um, and that, that hasn't changed. So while to, even, even in my thinking when I'm not thinking well about it or deeply about it, I, I tend to think, well, yeah, Acts was this separate sort of time. But actually, it's, it's really not. There, there, are, there are similarities to that between mm-hmm. what God has always done and his people from, from day one. So mm-hmm. and what a privilege it is to be set apart. What a privilege it is to not be spiritually dead and to, to actually have the ability now to glorify God. That's a privilege. That's a gift. That's, mm-hmm. that's something that we can't do for ourselves, right, to be able to see the glory of God and his holiness and, and, and emulate that. That's just not something that we can do. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I thought that all of that was super helpful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. Because, Cameron, as you're describing what the Spirit alone can produce, mm-hmm. we're, we're drifting into a form of church that is something that man actually can produce. We're getting into cultural mandates and mm-hmm. urban mandates mm-hmm. and making the world a better place and increasing human flourishing and increasing the gross domestic, domestic product and cleaning up graffiti and all these things. It's like the, the world without the Holy Spirit can do those things. Mm-hmm. So what is the church actually doing? The, the, the area where the, church, the, the world will never compete is holiness. The world has no ability to put sin to death. They cannot produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit can. And so when the church starts to get defined in other ways, then we've, we've actually lost the gospel. And, and that's why, you know, even as we're having this conversation, there might even be some listeners who are confused about what the church is supposed to be doing mm-hmm. because there's a lot of experts and pundits out there mm-hmm. who are leading churches in a direction, even, even like I just mentioned the urban mandate. The urban mandate is the idea that we've got to do what, to, to reach urban centers, we've got to make sure that our articulation and presentation of truth is contextualized for this city. And so we've got to watch out who we're, you know, who we're not offending, who we are offending, and we've got to make sure that we're uh, contextualizing the message in order to, to, so that they can, they can ideally receive it. 
But what ends up happening is we become like the world we're trying to reach. We stop being the church. Mm -hmm. Holiness goes down the drain because holiness is offensive. Mm -hmm. And then no, Christ is no longer building his church. We're building some enterprise. And so that's, that's how the church, yeah. And, that, and that's where the church has gone, gone astray from this, this mandate. From this. Well, thank you, John. We are out of time. But that was so helpful. And that was only part one. And that was only part one. So fret not, my friends. We are not done. We are not done. We knew this would happen. And so John will be back for our next episode. And we're going to go a little deeper and we're going to go a little bit more personal okay. and practical. He's going to tell us a little bit about how he does this as a dad, as a pastor, you know, different things like that, how we should be doing it in our, in our different stages of life. So I, I think it'll be a great episode. So stay tuned for that. And as you go about your week, we want to remind you about what is eternal. So we'll leave you with Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you for listening.